Welcome on in to Empower Talks. This is the podcast where we talk about careers with people across the insurance industry. Today on Empower Talks, I'm delighted to speak with Hayley Budd, who is the Tech Partnership Lead at Swiss Re. Hayley and I had worked together for many years whilst at Liberty, and she was the first person I heard talking about innovation. And now her role is centered around how we can modernize the insurance market. Today in this episode, Hayley shares with us her top tips for organizations who are looking to innovate, as well as for individuals who are looking for opportunities to find out more about advancements in the market and make sure their career goes in that same direction. Welcome, Hayley. Hello, Sam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's really good to see you. I haven't seen you for, oh, well, um, probably like four years, I reckon, at this point. Yeah, maybe longer. Maybe longer. Yeah. It's been a long time. <laughs> been a long time. Um, but before that, we worked together at Liberty for a very long time. So we would cross paths quite Did. a bit. And there was a lot that you were getting involved in, which I've always found interesting and learned more and more about over time, which is the reason I want to, wanted to bring you on today and give people insight into everything that you've learned and, and led on across the market, which is essentially around the topic of innovation. Yeah, yeah. I think it's quite nice to have the, the validation that the stuff I was banging on about <laughs> six, seven, eight years ago is now really coming into fruition. And like there's a real movement behind it now. So it's kind of nice to see that I wasn't barking mad and actually was probably onto something at the time. Yeah, and you were massively ahead of the curve. So, so from my perspective, I think I'd heard the word innovation being brought up in insurance. Like it was just a trendy word that just kind of got thrown around, I guess, in different meetings and seminars and so on. And then talking to you about it, I kind of discovered this underground world of like insurance people that had been interested and paying attention to innovation for quite some time that were involved in actually looking at where the opportunities were and and how that was working with people outside of the market and so on as well. So you were massively ahead of the curve and a fountain of knowledge by the time people were just about working out how to spell the word, I say. <laughs> when they're still arguing about whether it's InsTech, InsureTech, and how to spell InsureTech, like all of that stuff. It's, it's probably still a bit underground in that like one of the main meetups, like InsTech London, is still meeting in like... I think it's a nightclub but like these archways like under a railway track so it's still got that air of mystification about it but then obviously it's much more prominent with things like the Lloyd's lab as well which is where I started discovering things you know like there's, there's more to what we could be doing in insurance than like helping customers than just kind of heads down getting on with our day job but there's these endless possibilities of how we could think about things and create new products and services. So I was kind of like lured in, I guess, quite easily and quickly fell in love with that community and the whole topic around, you know, how can we create more solutions and like help clients. Now I'm at Swiss Re and then we say like making the world more resilient, but it's really around really thinking about how we can solve those problems. And then it's a, I think, really motivational story because you did actually make it your job. So that's what mm. I think we're going to talk about today. So what was the original journey? How did you start getting interested? And how did you 
sort of build your knowledge so you became a subject matter expert so rather than just being curious how did you make that your role and then make that your career so hopefully everyone's gonna hear about this and, and learn a bit about innovation for themselves but also understand how you can build out your career towards something you're really passionate about yeah I think as I've said like the beginnings of that was just discovering this and being being curious if I'm honest like being a little bit bored (laughs) at work (laughs) so you know when when you start to get a bit bored and you feel a bit flat and you question like what am I doing here where is my career going and how can I work on something that's really interesting and fulfilling you know all too often when your head's down working on whatever it is you can kind of get into that mindset and then it's whether you actually then go and do something about it when I was at that point in my career got to a certain stage wondering what to do next so did start to see about these meetups and just started going and it's like this is really interesting um and quickly from there like I started try I guess positioning myself as somebody who knew about this sexy stuff that was going on outside and started putting together um, like briefing packs for my boss and leadership to be like there's all this stuff going on there's these interesting companies who are solving these kind of problems our competitors are starting to look in this space we should be doing something about it too and I think like a lot of that is almost ignored because people are busy got targets um so for me it was just really being quite determined and continuing to hammer home that that message without getting too despondent that people aren't immediately being like wow this is great like we need to do it so it was a series of, of things so it was firstly me going out there building that knowledge seeing what other people were up to but then trying to create a movement within the organization so um fortunately leadership at that time were starting to think about innovation and what they could do and there were a few individuals there that had a similar mindset which meant we were able to create a kind of an innovation community i guess that had seen the leadership backing um to start thinking about these topics a bit more seriously so like we ran an innovation competition which I look back now and I'm a bit like it's kind of like innovation theatre like people talk about innovation a lot they think they're doing a lot of innovation but you're not really but it's a good starting point to get people interested so we ran a dragon's den type pitch and I had a lot of fun with with that like printing money with like the sponsor's face on not real money obviously to like hand out to people and just create a buzz and I pitched my own idea as well, which was about parametric insurance. So no surprises there. But I just continued on that path for a few years and then started bringing some of that thinking into my day job. So when we were thinking about how do we become like the insurance company of the future, like how do we create new operating models, bringing in some of that external thinking and tools to think slightly differently like what does the underwriter of the future look like rather than just going by what we've done previously and saying well we can shift a few tasks around and save a bit of headcount it's <laughs> just thinking a bit more out the box and then I think what really accelerated it for me because as you say that was still off the side of my desk I still had a day job I took a role 
internally, this was whilst I was at Liberty, that on paper was perhaps like seemed a bit boring and wasn't like it, it was a business analyst role. It wasn't fancy, but I knew the individuals that it was working for and that they thought differently. And I, I guess I took the leap knowing that they would back me. Mm. So then with like the parametric thing and this, like I became Liberty's cheerleader on parametrics, but I was then able to start taking that into my day job and thinking about how we could um, expand our parametric capabilities internally and use new distribution models and partner with startups as my job, which was great. To get that job, I was able to use all of those examples of doing things off the side of my desk and being proactive to sell myself into that role and actually take what, like I say, on paper wasn't the right thing but actually mold it into what I wanted so I was lucky in a way that they trusted me to do that but you know I'd done all the legwork yeah there's no luck in that my best definition of luck is when preparation meets opportunity you know if you do all the prep then when the opportunity is there then you get it but the luck isn't yeah. isn't just handed to you I think there's some really exciting highlights there that people will have kind of picked up on a few words and think that sounds interesting if we break this down into a, like a journey like a step-by-step so people can think about what they might be able to do let's start right at the beginning so how did you end up in insurance a thing that actually seems to always surprise people about me is I didn't go to university I started working in insurance when I was 18 which means I've now worked in this industry for coming up to 18 years which when people look at me they're like she's not worked anywhere for 18 years but um I am one of these fell into insurance people having not taken up my place at uni to study history because I didn't know what I would do with that from a working class background so like spending all that money on something that you don't even know if it's the right thing wasn't all that palatable so didn't do that and actually it was it was my driving instructor who told me about what his wife did for a living so she worked at an insurance company and that they were actually recruiting for an admin assistant so I ended up deferring my place at uni and thought I'll go and work for a year and see how this turns out maybe things will become a bit clearer I got that job and my first job was proofreading high net worth home insurance policies for his cops so imagine that now every single policy that goes out you're reading the letter and like the policy to check for spelling mistakes and (laughs) so that that was what I did for a year can't believe I stuck it out for that long but I then got the opportunity to apply for a claims handling role there again was successful um so for maybe two or three years I was a claims handler doing high net worth household claims and then you know I was quite happy doing that um, but I was Essex based at the time the bright lights of London were calling me so I thought why I need a new job because I'm not doing that reverse commute still didn't really have a clue about the insurance industry I was like in this little niche this little office in Southend um so I just started applying for any and every entry-level job that I could find eventually I landed a job as an aviation underwriting assistant and that was a travellers that was like a very traditional role in the sense that I was the box assistant at Lloyd's I did all the slip entry I did all the endorsements QC work everybody's admin you know 
go and get my lunch, that, that type of thing, <laughs> meeting minutes, RDS returns, all of that stuff. And I think that is where I really started to learn and understand the Lloyd's market. Then from there, I guess like everybody who is in that kind of role, I wanted to be an underwriter. So I positioned myself in that way, but I'm not that patient in the sense that when I know that I want to go and do something, I kind of want it to happen. And effectively, I was I was like waiting for my turn, like this concept of waiting for your turn to be able to step up into that role, um, like waiting for somebody to retire. I needed to earn more money because I was not being paid that well. And I lived in London. So I thought, you know, I'm off. And somebody actually who I worked with in my first job suggested trying being a business analyst. I was like, what's that? But because of my background in my other roles, I'd done a lot of um, system upgrades and enhancements. Again, like I had that foundation there. So after a while, I, I landed a job at what was then Liberty Syndicates. I worked there for nearly a decade. It's now Liberty Specialty Markets. Um, I also had a job like more at group level, Global Risk Solutions. But I went through a lot of different roles there, starting from that business analyst work, training in like Lean Six Sigma and helping set up a continuous improvements function, doing operating model and design. And then those things that we've been talking about, about eventually moving into product and underwriting strategy, where I worked on a lot of cyber and parametrics um, and then on to where I am today at Swissery. So the role of business analyst, I I always looked at that kind of area and that title, and it was always a mystery to me. I'm yeah. like, it's like the whole business, we're analysing it. Like, I always kind of thought, what, what does it actually mean? Because you guys spent a lot of time really in Excel, didn't you? Like analysing <laughs> analyzing, um, <laughs> data and opportunities and then presenting that back to, to the underwriters. But, um, but how would you describe that job? Yeah, so I sit in that camp as well. I mean, not anymore, but I'm like, I was Googling, what does a business analyst do? <laughs> Whilst I was a business analyst, I had no clue. It can be a lot of different things. Like I, I would see it as like a general analyst role because in that role, I've done things from software delivery. So putting in a new claim system. And as a business analyst, your job is to go out, speak to the business to find out what their requirements are articulate those requirements so you sit between the business and then your IT or tech function to communicate those requirements in a way that both sides understand then help deliver them um, and test that they fit the original requirements that were articulated to deliver it there are also business analysts that might take more of that kind of like data role and companies would define a business analyst as somebody who is analyzing a direction that you want to take your company in in different project structures right so a lot of people will hear about agile working so you have business analysts that work in agile and then those that would work in your traditional uh, waterfall methodology and then we have the business analyst that i was when i went to work for group where i was doing much more strategy there are business analysts out there who will be like, this is exactly what it is. And it's very well defined, but I'm someone that's like, it could be all and everything. So I guess that that role in itself, because you're looking at improvements to the business, that probably opened up maybe a bit of a window to, to find out about new things and therefore innovation early on. Was, was that a link or was that a coincidence? How did you first discover the buzz around innovation for insurance? Yeah, so I think it's certainly 
helps. I think that my foundation is what makes me successful in this role. Obviously, with diversity of thought, if you want to do product innovation, getting people from outside of your industry so that you don't have all of those unconscious or otherwise biases around what insurance or products look like is a good thing. However, because I have a background in claims and underwriting, and I've spent a lot of time analysing process all the way from you know when a submission comes in through to finance reporting on, on the other end, I understand how things knit together. So I understand dependencies and I'm less likely to fall into things that I haven't thought about when developing a new product, for example, because I know where the bodies are buried <laughs> and I know who I need to get to work with each other to make something successful. So having that intrinsic knowledge, I think, has been incredibly beneficial. And it's something that I have that a lot of people don't. And what I believe means that I not only talk about innovation, but able to actually deliver innovative products and services. So if we go back to the initial journey, a conversation I can remember us having, you'd found this group, almost this club of these insurance innovation people. And, and you said that once you'd met them, then actually there were lots of events going on and people would forward on invites and it became kind of quite easy for you to find out about more of these opportunities and so on. So initially, I think that network probably was a big help for you in, in finding sort of more about it, but that network was very much external and one that you found for yourself. So how did you find that network initially? And then how did you make sure you were proactive in that so that you were able to be sent those opportunities? Yeah, so I think initially, actually, I'm trying to think of like the first ever event that I went to. Um, and it probably was an InsTech London event, something like that. But I have discovered networks through Lloyd's of London. So like signing up to their email Blasts about events so like I used to go to all manner of events at the Lloyd's library you know have speaker events there several times a week so being part of like a Lloyd syndicate you have very easy access to those things so I started going along to those and people would start talking about certain topics and you know you'd get the names and contacts of people interested in them kind of go and stalk them effectively and see what else they were doing <laughs> I've never been that prolific on LinkedIn but you know LinkedIn was a good source of that because you can just search for terms and you can find all manner of networks and just go and put yourself out there but then the more you do it the easier it becomes like you only need to go to one or two of them and start talking about them and putting that in people's minds and then they start thinking about you when they become aware of events so the leadership that I was under at that time knew that I was going to these events because I was telling them about it so then when they heard about events that they were asked to go to or send people to they would send me so it's kind of like this snowball effect like when you think how am I ever going to build this network just start with one and then tell everybody who will listen <laughs> that you're doing it and that that really I guess is what has been my success there and then you 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 kind of say that really casually like go and tell all these leadership people about it that's kind of quite an intimidating thing for a lot of people to do you know to just walk up to to those offices and, and drop it into conversations but I think you were you were very good at doing that and doing it making it look you know quite natural so 
Hmm. Was that something that came naturally or did you kind of develop that? What, what advice would you give to people who they were trying to get that spotlight and drop it in conversation? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure many things come naturally to me, to be honest. Like, I think the other thing that surprises people about me is... Um, I am an introvert and I'm quite a shy person I'm very awkward socially awkward but it's like skills I've had to learn and I kind of have to force myself into uncomfortable situations because I know good stuff will come out of it Um, at the time I was fortunate enough to be working in an organization where actually you had access to people like that it wasn't again it wasn't like luck but starting at liberty syndicates when it was very small and people did know each other it, it was a lot easier to get access to those people initially but then as my career has gone on I think it is just being bold <laughs> and uh, you know I've done it in my new role is just contacting people and say like hey I'm new around here saw your profile or saw that you did this thing trying to make a connection with people like saw you did this talk blah 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 could we get a coffee it feels like something that's really difficult to do because you're putting yourself out there but what I have found is most of the time people are people so they're willing to have a conversation even if they're busy and if they're not the worst they'll do is ignore you or say (laughs) no I'm too busy but like people aren't rude about it so I think it is intimidating but I would also say just do it. So I guess what you then were able to do, and I've spoken on this podcast before about some of the experiences I got at Liberty, it was so entrepreneurial. I think when, when we were kind of going through that growth stage, and I think that gave people opportunities if, if you if you kind of came up with the idea of them. So there wasn't often a lot of like, hey, we're going to do this, show of hands, who wants to do it? But there was a lot more of like, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, go run with it. So if you were able to put your hand up or become somebody who um, was, like you say, sharing that interest, then the opportunities were, were really quite enormous. And you've mentioned a couple of them, the Dragon's Den competition, and I can remember lots of emails and initiatives coming out with, with new ideas. How did you go about kind of coming up with those ideas and grouping people together to make sure that culture was being developed? Yeah, so I think coming up with ideas... Like a lot of it is not necessarily new. It's just borrowing ideas that you've seen elsewhere and then being able to put your own perspective or company perspective on that idea to kind of evolve it slightly so it's it's more relevant, right? You know, occasionally I might have a, a bright idea from somewhere, but I wouldn't say that I'm a natural ideas person. <laughs> I, I get my inspiration from other people. I think what's made me successful there is I really do value contributions from other people. Like I, I'm very aware that I can't do everything on my own. I don't have the skill set to do that. I'm not an actuary. I'm not an underwriter, but what I am good at is bringing people together and having the right conversation and managing things and kind of like pushing them through and being relentless about that. I think actually with that mindset, it's quite easy to bring people together because having that foundational knowledge of these are the types of people we're going to need to be able to make this a success and then going out and bringing those people in. Again, when you're working somewhere where you have a culture 
where you're able to bring people in and they you know they're able to make choices for themselves as to whether they want to do that or not rather than having to go through like a level of hierarchy to be like can I ask this person and then having to get time signed off like it, it does make it easier but I think just being very open about what skills you need and bringing them together is like if you can do that you're halfway to solving things so you were getting involved in more and more and because more and more time consuming I can imagine you've been in a scenario with that where you're thinking okay I'm busy in my job I'm busy in this job I want to do more of this this is a value in it but I'm still expected to do my job and that can then get you to a point where you're like okay how do I manage both and if not how do I get myself over to this lane that I want to go in usually that's quite a hard transition to do to get the kind of I guess, official buy-in and opportunity for you able to kind of manoeuvre that. Often a lot of patience is involved in it as well. Mm-hmm. So are you able to kind of tell us about that journey for you? I'll start by saying I am quite bad at managing my workload in the sense that I will always take on more and more and more and more and more. It's something I've learned to like manage over the years, but for me, it was never an issue in the sense that like, oh, I've got too much on and I'm too busy because I'm trying to manage all of these things because I was so passionate about it and I wanted to do it. I just made time for it. Now, I wouldn't necessarily give that advice to people, but that's the type of person I am. And I felt like I needed to get it to a critical mass where there was enough value in it for me be, to be able to sell that value. So like at the start, because I was interested in these things, going to a leadership team or management and being like, hey, I want to do this for my job. They'd be like, great, (laughs) go away. So part of it is having to get it to that critical point. But I then got to the point where I was like, I have too much baggage with this in my organisation because like people have this view of me and I'm doing all this stuff off the side of my desk, but this is still my day job. People wanted me to continue doing that day job that I made the decision that actually I just need to go and seek out a role that is the role I want to do externally so I think there's only a certain amount that you you can do within your current organization to kind of create the role and the opportunities but for me it's like now is the right time to leave Um, and I can talk about the things that I had delivered Um, a lot of strategy but if I want to take this to the next level of actually building products and services then I need to go elsewhere so I kind of did that and how was that because if you've spent that long in an organization you've created that buzz you've got all these projects that you're like looking back on proudly you're becoming known to all the senior people and so on within it and you've you've got friendships as well you know when you've been somewhere that long how simple was it to make that decision and then actually go about doing it I think the decision was easy then you have to find the job right especially when you're doing something that's as niche as product innovation outside of underwriting Um, it takes time to find the right role and also you develop a view of the market and have like a hit list of where you think you could go and work, where you'd like to go and work and where you don't want to work and kind of like narrowing it down. So then you're left with a handful of organisations, a very niche role that doesn't necessarily exist. And then you kind of have to wait. So that's that. And then when I did get the role, 
I'm not going to lie, I found it really tough. <laughs> it still is a year later, if I'm being honest, um, but it has got easier. As you say, like when you've been somewhere, like in my case for a decade, you, you become quite institutionalised, but you also have a huge amount of social capital just from being around so long. And I think for me, I'm very good at theorising things in my head, like, oh, this, this is it. I could tell myself this is going to be difficult, but I don't think I actually recognised that it was going to be as difficult as it was. Because making, making a move into a new company with a completely different culture, like somewhere that's US headquartered, that, that culture trickles down, Liberty, specialty markets had a very strong culture. Going into somewhere with a completely different culture, so much more European, Swiss based, doing that remotely during a pandemic is really tough. And I'm sure lots of people recognise that because I've still not met 80, 90% of the people that I work with. And maybe I won't, right? Because times have changed, you know, we're not traveling as much for business now. And I, I'm, you know, effectively working for a branch where I am. But I think I really downplayed the importance of social capital in the sense that I was like, I'm knowledgeable, I'm highly competent, I know about innovation, I can walk the walk here. Uh, people like working with me, like how hard could this really be? turns out really hard um, because I think what I've learned is that like your background your foundational knowledge is one thing but if you don't know anybody they don't know you they don't trust you getting to the point of people trusting you is a lengthy process like it's not going to happen overnight and I think one of my main learnings from this is that the right exposure trumps knowledge <laughs> when you're moving and when you're trying to do something so that that was a steep learning curve for me I talk a lot about a model I heard about first from Inga Bill actually called Pi it's about kind of the theory of how we get promoted and it breaks down mm. Pi being performance image and exposure and essentially 60% of the reason we're able to progress in our careers is exposure and exactly those kind of social capital things that are just you don't really think anything of because they're just like day-to-day -day interactions and the, the fact that you can say to somebody, oh, I've got this idea, and they just go to you, no, oh, I think that's an awful idea, because here's why. If they know you, they'll tell you that. And if they don't know you, they'll be like, mm, okay. And then they'll let you run off with this awful yeah, idea. Or they, or they just ignore you, <laughs> especially when you work in a group role. I've worked in group long enough to know that people don't really like group, do they? And it's only when you get a good reputation for being somebody to work with that people will work with you. But that doesn't come overnight like you say you can't just rock up somewhere and be like hey I'm Hayley come and do some innovation with me they're like no thanks so what steps are you making to, to make that easier to get your social capital back to where it was the things I am doing I'm being like super proactive talking to lots and lots of people to build up my network internally and just get my face out there I'm doing things like I have workshopping skill sets, like I'm trained facilitator and all of this stuff that don't necessarily do my day job, but I have it. So I'm kind of using those skills and offering up those skills to volunteer, to run workshop or help people facilitate them. Again, just getting my face in that little square on a, on a team's call. I go to networking drinks and events or charity type events. So even though 
I said I can be be quite antisocial and awkward um, and the shy part of me is screaming at me to go home at the end of the day but I make myself go and do it but then the other thing I've started doing is going on training courses for things that I've done trainings in before so stuff like um, managing stakeholders or having presence or building a personal brand they're all things I've done before but in your day job you will only meet certain types of people within the context of that project right so if you go and put yourself out there by meeting different people in a completely different context again you can build your network and I think I've also learned that redoing training courses over and over again is never a bad thing I think sometimes like my ego might take over and be like oh I've done this before but actually it's good to brush up on those skills because if anyone is like me, they go on these courses, they're like, this is brilliant. They put it into practice for a bit and then they soon forget about it. So having that constant reinforcement is a good thing, whilst also meeting like-minded or not like-minded people. So those are my tips. I like that too, especially the training one. That's music to my ears here and there. Yeah, I knew you'd like that. <laughs> so if we get into some of the kind of technical things that you've um, been able to deliver and get involved in in the market so one of the words that's associated with a lot of the work you've done is around the parametrics do you want to tell us about that in terms of the project with Lloyd's with parametrics like I say I became a bit of a cheerleader at Liberty about that and then what we've ended up seeing in the market is a lot of the innovation coming through either to the Lloyd's lab or the product launch pad facility it's called now tend to be parametric ideas which is great like you know ticks all the boxes but I got involved in again quite quite early on when people were trying to gain some traction around parametrics like that you know it's not a new concept parametric policies have been around for decades I think they're just having a bit of a renaissance at the moment and if um, we go back just go back a few steps assuming yeah. that I've never been to any of these events lots of people listening when I go to these events If you'd start in talking about it in terms of for somebody who doesn't know what they are, give us an introduction in and what it looked like decades ago and what it looks like now. A parametric policy is a policy whereby cover is triggered if a predefined event happens and you measure that event using an objective parameter or an index that's related to the exposure. Now, that sounds really complicated. But if we think about a very easy example, and this is where parametrics were born from, they came out of cat events. So if you think about a hurricane hitting cat four, so a cat four hurricane, making landfall or tracking through a certain area, if that event happens, and you can easily measure that through various different independent agencies like NOAA, for example, and you know that that event has happened, you pay out. So you'd have a policy that says, if this happens, then pay X amount. It's quite simple. (laughs) There are complexities around it because there have been concerns over legislation around what if we pay out when an insured loss hasn't occurred. So usually when there's a loss, you're going and adjusting that loss and seeing how much damage was caused and then you're paying out on that basis. With parametrics, you don't do that. So if the event happens, they get the payout. Now, what that means previously, ways of measuring weren't as advanced as they are now. So you could have something called basis risk, which means the hurricane might have been a cat five 
for whatever it's gone through this path but actually your insured didn't really suffer a loss or if you think about like topography with like weather events an event like rainfall or something could affect one specific area but if you're using a grid system cat in a box they're quite often called the insured might not have suffered a loss but you've paid out so then they're effectively earning money it can happen the other way that the policy doesn't pay out but the insured has suffered a loss because the trigger the threshold wasn't met for example but more and more we're using them for other events not just weather events so there's a company out there who does the cyber parametrics so for downtime so if your cloud provider goes down for a certain amount of time it will pay out and again you have that that data you can use them for business interruption events because of footfall so you can track the number of people and if that reduces and you can tie that to an event a pandemic for example then that would pay out so there's lots of of uses for them and a kind of being heralded as a way of plugging protection gaps in the market i guess so if i if i say that what i'm hearing is like the benefits of those you're stripping out the claims process so it's a lot quicker for people to get paid and a lot more certainty over them getting paid yep. and then i guess through that you also know exactly what you're your sum insured is going to be you know what your maximum losses are because they're all fixed so you can then also calculate your exposure incredibly quickly to be able to work out what certain events are going to cost you yes that's right so there's benefits to both the client and the insurer in that in that angle like both sides get more certainty because as you say you know exactly what's going to happen so you don't have instances where you have claims been handled over a protracted period of time or when you do have a cat event and you can't get loss adjusters on the ground to go and assess damage so then payouts don't happen for a long time like it gives people quick liquidity to help them recover more quickly be able to put that money towards repairs or paying staff like whatever it may be and then for the insurer you're saving money potentially in the claims function because you're not paying loss adjuster fees you also don't need the staff to handle the claim because it's binary in a sense Um, and then like you say for reserving purposes it's much easier because you know exactly what you're paying and you pay out immediately so flood flash there'll be an example of this it would be yes yes and they actually manage like fears over basis risk because they use their own measuring device so they have um, a device that they install on the property that you're insuring and that is constantly monitoring and sending data signals for the event to happen so as soon as like a water level hits a certain point on that measuring stick it pays out so they're not relying on a third-party data source and it's highly specific to that insured so it reduces the basis risk there. So the examples we're talking about there are all kind of known, already maybe insured examples that we're then insuring in a different way. Is this also opening up new markets and things that we didn't think we could insure that now we can have potential to to provide some kind of cover for? Yeah, so I think it's covering things in different ways and plugging gaps. So like the cyber one that I mentioned or thinking about non-damage business interruption creating a new a new way of of insuring through those products um and then i also think when we think about you know another hot topic is things like internet of things devices which you can then use those to monitor and create parametric products off the back of it so 
if you think about um, a building, for example, um, and you have a monitoring device on that building that's, you know, it could be looking for water leaks, for example, or, or cracking, and then you're stopping that event from even happening because you're sending those alerts, which means you can then go and remedy the fault rather than nobody knowing about it, the event happening, the building collapsing, huge water claim, you've then got liability claim as well as property damage. So they're kind of insuring things in new ways, making the uninsurable more insurable. Most people are aware that you can't, you can't solve all of the world's issues by just chucking traditional capacity at it. So it's just thinking about how can we insure things in new and different ways that brings more certainty to, to all parties. Yeah. And then now in your new role, you've, you're able to essentially look at some products that you can actually bring to market, putting all of this into place to, to have some things um, that you can see really making a difference for yourself. So do you want to talk to us about one of those? Yeah, so we have um, an app or a programme at Swiss Re, and it's called Net Zero U2. And it is recognising that quite often people's own personal carbon footprint is actually higher than the operational footprint of the company that they're working for. And if anybody knows anything about Swiss Re, you'll know that sustainability and climate are at our heart. We do a lot of work in that area. So we saw a gap internally about how do we communicate all of the work that we're doing here and educate our staff so they understand the topic of sustainability and climate and footprint and the impacts that they are having on the world. It's such a big topic and it's so overwhelming and you think, I can't do anything about this, like I'm powerless. And what the product does is it really helps you to take those small sustainable steps yourself so you feel like actually there is something I can contribute here so it's an app we've been using internally for well over a year now we've had a lot of traction we have over 25% of our employees actively engaged in using this app which is a good number so now we're looking at how um, we can commercialize that as a product to sell to our clients either to our clients for their own employees or for our clients, insurance clients, to sell to their clients in turn. Um, so we do work with a third party provider on providing this app. So it's about connecting those people together and then giving the Swiss Re content that we have provided that puts in all of our risk expertise and knowledge to create this joint movement on how we can make small steps to create a big impact. I'm picturing, I don't know if you've used the um, NOM app, for like educating people about diet. So it's a bit oh, like yes. my fitness yes. pal, but it also gives yes. you kind of the motivational and focuses on your goals and so on as well. Yeah, so it's it's about gamification, right? So you start off by calculating your carbon footprint, like your individual footprint, and then it benchmarks you. So it says like for your region, so like UK or Europe, um, here is where your score sits with other people and then how that compares to other regions. And then you do quizzes so you can learn about different sustainability topics. One of our first topics was around like food. So you, you learn about that, you answer questions. And then the last thing you can do is 
challenges to reduce your footprint. So we'll ask you, do you want to take on this and actually go and do it? So it could be things like zero waste shopping, cutting down on your meat consumption, challenging yourself to not buy new products, challenging yourself to not choose next day delivery and have slow delivery instead. And then it ranks everybody on like a, it's like a competition. So you're all pitted against each other to see who has the biggest carbon footprint and then like who's taking the most action to try and reduce it. And then you can also incentivize people to do that as well. If the competitive angle isn't enough for you, <laughs> you can then reward people at your organization with like extra days, holidays, uh, things like that. And then the other thing we're working on is then how do you offset that carbon? We work with an organisation, Swiss Re, to be able to offset that. So then bringing that flavour into the app as well. Are you looking at rolling it out within your clients through employee benefits, pensions, those kind of relationships? Or are you looking at rolling it out to companies that you know have, for example, an objective to reduce their footprint? So they might do it more strategically rather than maybe small businesses that are just looking for ways to engage their employees with this or both? I think it's both, really. When we think about who are the people we want to have conversations with, then because it's an employee engagement tool to an extent, it makes sense to have those conversations with HR benefit talent type people, I guess, and see if you can tie it into programs. But then the flip of that is if sustainability isn't a topic within an organisation, they're probably not going to want to find a service that helps to educate employees about that. But a lot of it as well is about not only engaging with your employees, but also thinking about your company's own image and whether you could improve that by putting sustainability at the top of your agenda and showing ways that you're doing that. Um, and this app is just one of them, right? Like it's not going to solve the climate crisis <laughs> by doing this. It's just one thing that companies can do to show positive action. Yeah. And also be able to measure the impact that they're having as well. Yeah, you can measure the amount of carbon that's been saved through those actions. And you can put that into your company reports or whatever else. Yeah. So if somebody's listening to this, like I am, small business, I probably wouldn't look at it as a B2B type product. But you're thinking, if that was on the app store, I might actually want to have a look at it. Is there kind of a vision that it might just become more accessible for people as an initiative to support the public as well yeah potentially potentially I think what we're doing at the moment and this is you know coming back to the topic of innovation when you have an idea you start small and you pilot something and you don't necessarily spend too much money or try and create something that serves all purposes for everyone from the off so what we're doing with this is we're starting with like trying to find some pilot clients proving the value that actually people see value in this and would want to, to buy it and spend money on it. And then you think about how you can scale and all the different ways you could do that. And like you say, it may end up that this becomes a product that sits on the app store that anybody can go and purchase. But for us at the moment, if we just chuck that out there onto the app store, we'd have to do a lot of work internally to be able to do that. And then people probably wouldn't buy it because they wouldn't know it's there. So, yeah. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, okay, look, I've already picked up a few things. I didn't know was going on. I'm interested in innovation. What are all the different groups and events that you would recommend to people who want to kind of start exploring the network that's out there in insurance? 
yeah, I've spoken about both of them already, but if you do work for a Lloyd's syndicate, go and engage with the Lloyd's lab, go onto the Lloyd's website, go and see what's going on. If you are then interested in what they have to say and what they're doing, you could then go and mentor at the Lloyd's lab. So they're always looking for, for mentors to help develop those products and make them relevant to the industry. So that's a very good and easy way. Um, and then the other one is Instech London. If you go on their website, depending on who you work for, your company might already have a corporate membership at Instech London, but they have a lot of resources on their website. Like if you just want to know about stuff, if you want to know about parametrics, they have an excellent paper on parametrics. If you want to know about uh, data ingestion, AI, any, any innovation topic you can probably think of, they'll have some resources to, to look at. And then they hold regular meetups as well in person that you can go and attend. And then both Lloyd's Lab and Instech London do numerous events over Zoom or whatever your <laughs> provider of choice is, um, where you can learn about topics and they have regular speakers there. So there's two very easy ways. And if you're looking at the progress that's happened within the market over the last, say, seven years, and no, slow and steady, but I think the pace and the traction's kind of really started to pick up. So if you were to kind of throw that forward over the next, say, five years, where would you want to see this, this get to in terms of, are there any kind of like milestones that you're waiting for? Uh, this is always a tricky one because it's really hard to predict the future. <laughs> but I think for me in my current role, what I'm really looking for is looking for innovation, like I say, outside of traditional risk transfer. So thinking about products and services that insurers can create or reinsurers can create to help their customers be more resilient. So for me, like that's quite a change, like going from being seen as in the case of Swiss Re, this reinsurance monolith, to then trying to sell products, services and solutions with people questioning why would you buy them from Swiss Re not a software provider so I think in the next five years trying to build that momentum so that insurers are not just seen as people that you go to for traditional coverages but actually as somebody who can plug gaps you have or solve problems you have in a much more creative and innovative way so that's quite esoteric in a way but I think it's more about changing the perception of our organization than saying this thing is going to happen yeah where we've always kind of focused on diversifying different products across your business but still selling insurance across different products you're diversifying your way of risk management to help people reduce or prevent that exposure as well as cover them, them should it happen exactly yeah cool as we come to the end of the podcast, we always end these with a piece of advice for people who are looking at their careers and where they might want to take their careers. So if you were to share one piece of advice that you think's really helped you, what would that be? Can I do two? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so my first one would be try not to specialise too soon at the start of your career. So I think there are a lot of people in this industry who have a real depth of knowledge, which is great, useful and needed, but far fewer have a real breadth of knowledge. So thinking across rather than down. 
we know our industry is changing and evolving. So being able to speak well about a lot of different topics, whether that's industry verticals and classes, classes of business, or different disciplines so across claims, underwriting, actuarial, whatever. Having that is going to make you really indispensable to companies and make for a far more interesting career that could take all manner of unexpected directions. Secondly, now I really don't like women in particular being told to be nice, but I would say be someone that people love working with and be someone who people want on your team and will always ask for you to be on the team. That in itself is a combination of being a pleasure to work with because people enjoy working with you, but also insinuates a level of competence in what you're doing, which is important too. And I think having that means that you'll have a real impact in, in whatever you are doing. Excellent. I love both of those. And you can see how both of those have helped you in your career as well. Yeah. Turns out it wasn't an accident all along. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Hayley. Um, we'll direct people to your LinkedIn. If anyone's listened and they're interested to get involved or maybe they're going to one of these events for the first time, then you can absolutely go and find Hayley on LinkedIn. You're more active on LinkedIn than you used to be now, though, right? I'm getting better at it. <laughs> we talk on LinkedIn, so you must be a bit more because you're certainly popping up. Yeah, there. like secretly active. Excellent. Okay, well, thank you so much, Hayley. And I've personally learned a lot from that as well brilliant all right thank you so much